Welcome back to the Sensible Medicine Podcast. I'm joined once again by my friend and colleague, Dr. John Mandrola, cardiologist from Louisville, Kentucky. John, it's a pleasure to see you again. I'm glad you made it to the show. I'm glad I did too. We had a little traffic jam this afternoon, but we made it. You made it. And here we are, Sunday afternoon. The big oncology conference is raging, and I'm covering it remotely as an expert broadcaster would. So here I am in plenary session headquarters covering the latest updates. Well, that's kind of weird because I would think I would think a guy of your stature would be giving multiple <laughs> multiple invited lectures. What's up with that? Well, critical appraisal is not really allowed, John. It's not allowed in oncology. You got to toe the line. Cheerleaders only this year at ASCO 2023. Um, but we joke, but there's a lot of truth to that actually. One is that the ASCO organization, the Oncology Association, receives sizable revenue from the pharmaceutical industry each year. I mean, that's just a fact. Two, the best floor space in the conference is devoted to pharmaceutical exhibits where they pay five-figure, maybe even six-figure for some of these spaces. Three, critical appraisal is permitted, but insofar as the appraising is, you know, within the bounds of what people think is reasonable, you can't go up there and say this whole trial is actually not able to answer an important clinical question, ergo it's unethical, which is what I think one of the major trials showed this week. Um, so, you know, it's all part of the song and dance of medicine where, you know, we have this sort of dual role as doctor and also advertisement for the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, whereas I, I play hard, you know, I'm going to do some videos on it after this. Yeah. So I've actually got invited to ASCO by accident. I think a couple <laughs> of years ago, uh, I, I, they gave me, they asked me to give a talk on digital health. And, and so I, I, I walked into that place and of course I'm used to cardiology meetings, which are pretty big. I mean, we have a NASCAR in our expo. I mean, so, I mean, it's pretty big, but ASCO was a step higher than uh, cardiology. So I think you guys, you guys outdo us when it comes to largesse of, of meetings. Well, I think it's also reflected in a number of other statistics. One, the percentage of pharmaceutical R&D that's in oncology versus cardiology. When I last checked a few years ago, I think we had even dominated you all in cardiology, which tells you something because your market share is ostensibly much larger than our market share. So why would we have more R&D in our space than your space? It's that R&D is not proportionate to burden of disease. R&D is proportionate to net expected outcome. And the net expected outcome of our R&D is much nicer than the net expected outcome of your R&D. So that's one, two, uh, 42,000 people, you know, in Chicago every year for like at least the last 10 years and beyond. Um, it's quite a spectacle, quite a spectacle. Is it always in Chicago? They have entered into some agreement with the McCormick Center to do it for like 20 years in a row or something. It has to be wow. only one of several places that's big enough because you can do the hematology meeting, I think, in San Diego, but you can't do oncology. It doesn't have enough rooms. So it has to be the biggest of big venues and only, only McCormick and a few others are that big. So I want to ask you, uh, I, I, I actually, I'm, I'm a totally outside observer. When you start talking about these cancer drugs and their names, I, I, I really, I, 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 I don't know how others do it, but I, I kind of lose you. But so my two questions is there in a 42,000 person meeting, there, there must be some big developments presented, number one. So I'm interested in that. And number two, you know, I, I watch you. And I, I, I see your videos about how this drug extends life two months and costs $100,000 a year. And I, I get the impression that there's a lot of incremental gains in, in oncology, but yet I also have patients have lung cancer and they take this pill and I see them every year. And I'm like, how's your lung cancer? It's stable. And so a lot of cancer, it seems like we've made big gains. So I just, I guess those are my two questions for you. Okay, so maybe I should start by saying that I do think some drugs are remarkable in oncology and have been truly transformative. And to me, the beauty of being a medical oncologist is in trying to know when you ought to use the really transformational drug and when you're being a victim of hype. And I think that's something that you're very passionate about as well. And I wanna make another point though. When it comes to the clinician's experience, I think in some ways it might be truthful because absolutely it is the case that the person who comes into the office in 2022 with chronic myeloid leukemia has just a different future than the person who walked in in 1972. I think that's absolutely true. But sometimes we should also remember, sometimes the clinician's experience can be biased by 
opportunistic diagnosis, lead time bias, etc. So for instance, imagine a type of a program where we screen everybody for lung cancer, like we are doing right now. It's possible that two things are true. The screening program actually doesn't make people live longer, but you give them the label earlier in life and your clinic is transformed from, wow, everyone used to die in a year to now people are living five, six years. Something is working well. But what you're missing is you only see them from when they have the label attached to them. Okay, but having said that, I have a slide or two. Can I show you, John? Maybe Absolutely, it... please. All right. This is... Um... I have to give a verbal description for the listeners only. That's right, for the only listeners. All right, here we are. How we are doing time trends. That's what you see on your screen. You see the I slide? See okay. Yeah. All right. So the first slide, this is the success story, John. This is the story that I think everyone in oncology wish, wishes, um, wishes we were chasing. Oh, let me full screen it. Oh, that's better. That's better, isn't that? All right. So let me walk you through this. This is a paper that came out in the Journal of Clinical Oncology maybe about five years ago. It's the Swedish experience with chronic myeloid leukemia, which is a type of blood cancer. Okay. There's a few things to see here. One figure tells quite a story. This is a story about a 55-year-old woman. So she's 55 and a woman in Sweden. There's two lines here. The first line, the yellow line. It shows you on the x-axis the year the woman is diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukemia. And on the y-axis, it tells you how long her life expectancy is based on the year of diagnosis. And you can see, I've shown here the blue arrow. If she were diagnosed in 1974, her life expectancy would be three to four years. The blue, air, the blue line at the top of the figure, that tells you the life expectancy of the same 55-year-old woman if she didn't get the CML diagnosis, the age sex match control. As you see here, it's like 27 years. And so this gap between the blue and the yellow, this is what we call years of life lost. And I think it tells you that this is a really devastating condition that you're losing you know, 20 years of life by getting the CML diagnosis. Now, as you can see in the figure, as time marches on and we get to 2010, Something has happened where that same 55-year-old woman getting the diagnosis in 2010, the gap is almost entirely closed. And this to me is like the greatest success story in oncology. Why? Because imatinib was approved in 2001, and that is the sole reason that these lines converge. This one drug, a pill you take every day, uh, possibly for the rest of your life, but we're increasingly learning you can stop it in some people, has closed 20 years of life lost in a disease. And to me, absolutely transformative and we want to have this happen in every cancer um by, right. by the way how yeah. was it discovered was it just serendipity or or oh good story so the story is i think 1994 95 96 brian drucker is a hemonc fellow at dana farber cancer center at harvard um by all accounts he wanted to study bcr able which was the fusion protein found in cml the discovery of the fusion protein goes back many years they we first noticed the philadelphia chromosome I think it was in 1972, Janet Raleigh at the University of Chicago realized the Philadelphia chromosome was two genes translocated. In other words, the whole genome, one part broke and one part broke and they attached themselves together. And that attachment made it, it was always on. It's a switch that's just always on. So she discovered that in the 70s. It was sequenced over decades. By the, by the mid-1990s, Brian was very interested in drugging it. But famously, Dana-Farber wouldn't hire him. So he took a job at the only place that the greats start out, Oregon Health and Science University, <laughs> my, old, my old place. He took a job there and um, he published a paper. I think he got Novartis. He figured out Novartis had a drug that hit that target. Um, it was STI 571, which was imatinib. And um, he got them to agree to do a small laboratory study, which they published in 96, I think in Nature Medicine. It showed that drugging, this drug works really well in cell culture. And then from 96 to 98, he tried to persuade the company to run a phase one clinical trial. The company famously said that we are lucky to make $100 million off this drug, so it's not even worth it to develop it. Um, in retrospect, they made something like on the order of like, I don't know, $15 billion from the drug. So it was clearly in their favor. And the moment you gave the drug in phase one trial, I think New England Journal 99, 2000, it was almost 100% response rate. It looked like it was just a wonder drug. So yes, serendipity. Yes, that classic story of an oncologist who stuck with the problem. Um, and also just the perfect lock and key story. Uh, ironically, it was the first TKI we discovered was actually the best TKI. All the next 20 years of oncology, we never Wait, got TKI is, TKI ty is tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Okay. So this, this type of drug, the first small, the first drug like this we found was the best one. And it's actually kind of ironic 
because we launched about 10,000 ships to find one of these for every tumor. Unfortunately, for 99% of tumors, it didn't exist, you know? Um, and actually, I sort of perversely think that um, maybe we, it actually resulted in some harm, ironically, because it was such a um, spectacular success that we changed the entire trajectory of R&D for 15 years and focused on this myopically, and we neglected other areas that were incredibly promising. Anyway, that's a longer story. But this is the story. It's you know, st just amazing. So one now, other question yes. is, could you draw a similar curve for testicular cancer? Because when I was in training in Indiana, Lance Armstrong was there, you know, with brain mets and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, now look, I mean, he's normal. And uh, I just wonder how, how, is that a similar story? Yes, it's a, it's a very similar story. In fact, it predates this. Uh, it wasn't just one drug, it was several drugs. And you know the person who did it, Larry Einhorn in, at Indiana right. University. Um, and it was a combination of uh, bleomycin, etoposide, and platinum, or VIP, which is what Lance got, which spares you the pulmonary toxicity of the bleo. Great story. And I think there are other stories like that, like uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma has some great stories. But these stories go back to the 60s and 70s. I think in the last 30 years, probably Imatinib was the best story. But to be perfectly honest with you, John, um, maybe if you, if you took the old chemotherapy drugs and made this kind of survival curve, the, the, there would still be a gap at the end from secondary cancers and toxicities, and maybe that gap is still not fully closed. But it's still a remarkable story, those story. You know, testicle, yeah. Hodgkin's, non-Hodgkin's, uh, CML. We have had some successes. I think that's the beauty of oncology. Okay, now let me do the lung cancer. I'm going to tell you the same exact figure for a 55-year-old woman who has that type of non-smoker. It's typically in a non-smoker. It's typically an Asian woman. Uh, the, the kind of lung cancer you drug. Alex, they call this the game changer, okay? They're calling this the game changer, same figure. Oh, we have a paper on it, okay. Oh, all right, before I show you the figure, here's what we show in our paper. Um, these are all the known driver mutations uh, on the bottom, HER2, NTREC, BRAF, RET, MET, uh, EGFR, ALKROS1. And this blue bar shows you the time from when you're diagnosed to how well you might do if you took all of the drugs in a row. The green bar shows you regular old lung cancer, the classic kind of smoking-induced lung cancer. That's the green bar. And as you point out, John, in your clinic, there are a lot of people who are doing years better than regular old lung cancer. So it looks like it's a success, right? Yeah. But what we're showing you in this figure, we show the blue bar shows you the age with which you were diagnosed. Uh, the orange bar shows you how well you do with all the drugs. And then the, um, the bar at the top is the life expectancy of in America. And as you can see, even though those driver mutation cancers have more time on drug, they do well. Like, look how big the orange is for Ross 1 or ALK. The gap between they're getting the cancer so much earlier in life, so the years of life lost is still, like, worse than if you had smoking-induced lung cancer. So, actually, these observations are true, John. Somebody in your clinic, it looks like they're taking the pill for years and doing well because you're only seeing them in the orange. You don't see them when they're in that gap and you don't see them when they're in the blue. Meanwhile, the smoker, you don't even meet him with lung cancer until he's 71. You know what I mean? I see, I see, right. I see. So, so again, is it the glass half full? Yeah, the glass is half full, but unfortunately, you know, you're getting the cancer maybe 15 years sooner than you otherwise would. Okay, now I make the same figure for the, all these drugs. This is what it looks like. Uh. Yeah. So the listener should know, I've recreated the figure from the JCO paper. I've used the ALK drugs all sequentially in a row. Uh, this is imagining you're taking lectinib, then brigatinib, then lorlatinib, et cetera, et cetera. And it shows really that the curves, although they converge a little bit, there's still like 20 years of life lost. Okay, I'm going to stop sharing my screen. And I'll give you the human side of it, which is that in my career, oh, the mouse pointer is not visible. So I cannot stop sharing my screen. Okay, in my career... Um, through a quirk of fate, somebody at the university left and he was doing a lot of lung cancer. And as the way in which the world works, they said, we need somebody to do a lot of lung cancer. And I was that somebody because I looked like I was young. So I ended up taking over a, a lot of lung cancer patients and many of whom had the driver mutation. And I guess I was always grateful that we had those drugs. You know, they helped my patients. At the same time, when you're in the room with a 47-year-old woman, for instance, and she's dying of lung cancer, and she's coming to the clinic visits with her children because she doesn't have daycare, and you know that she's, uh, no matter how well the drugs work, she's still going to lose 20 years of life, and she's not going to be there for these kids' graduations. Um, 
It's just devastating. And for me to go around and hear my colleagues call it a game changer when I have to go and talk to this husband who lost, you know, the mother of the kids, um, there's a, there's something wrong with the field. You know, we need to say, yes, it's progress. It's incrementalism. Yes. But my God, we have a lot of work yet to do. So, so these are, uh, why are these, why are younger people, is it just, uh, they get lung cancer because of a stochastic chance thing and they happen to have these, these driver mutations that are maybe a little bit more drug responsive or, but I mean, yeah, how does I mean, that work? my theory of it is that, um, the common cancers that are common as we get older are probably the byproduct of a lifetime of environmental damage where your DNA is being damaged in all sorts of ways, your immune surveillance is being impaired in all sorts of ways. And so when you get colon cancer, ovarian cancer, prostate, breast, lung, often the genome looks like a dinner plate that fell on the floor. It's shattered in a million pieces. And and accordingly, it's not surprising we don't find one driver, one piece of the plate we can tape together and the whole thing suddenly is whole again. But when you start to think about younger people, people who are Asian, non-smoker, and they have this unique predisposition to lung cancer, it is exactly as you say, it's a sporadic, random event, genomic event, where one thing happens, and that one thing is often very, very important to the cancer biology. It is often a transformative event, like the fusion of an ALK, uh, NHL ALK4. And so when you get those events, then if you drug that one thing, yeah, maybe it's very, very likely to respond. Um, and, you know, we've done so much work. I have lots of theories about this. But uh, at the end of the day, cancer is ultimately, you know, uh, a lot of it is luck. We don't have a story that explains who gets it when. It's always a reminder that, you know, you should live life like you never know how long it'll go on because it's different than your – I mean, I think cardiovascular disease, you guys think you can – you could diet and exercise your way out of it, and you can. And in oncology, those things are important too, but we still just have this huge bit of bad luck. And so, Yeah. I bet with time we'll find out why Asian female non-smokers rather than white men in Kentucky, you know, for instance, for EGFR. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a really interesting point is that is that, you know, I'm not a preacher to patients. I just like to give them information. But but if you have an MI at age 55, you you can seriously modify your your probability of having another one by, you know, doing a lot of things like diet, exercise, taking medicines, that kind of thing. And, and you can modify that, but it seems to me that, that cancer is somewhat modifiable, modifiable, but nowhere near to the extent that atherosclerosis is. Right. Look at Bill Clinton after his quadruple bypass in Columbia university. He yeah. has now been pretty fine for so many decades. And, uh, John, there's a, I have a really great story. Many years ago, I was on service with um, a, a pair of doctors. The husband is a cardiologist. The woman is a leukemia doctor. And the husband is known for being a, a militant vegan. He's a vegan. He avoids, you know, he's only one glass of red wine, uh, exercise. When you look at this guy, he's like skinnier than me. You know, you can see every tendril uh, in his neck. I mean, he's fit as a fiddle. He runs like a machine. He doesn't eat any butter. Not, you know, he's a purist. His LDL is like, I don't know, 12. I don't know, you know, like until the membranes right. are rupturing, right? Okay. Um, then we go out to lunch with the wife because she's the leukemia doctor. She takes the team out for lunch and she's ordering like, you know, steak and she's ordering butter sauce she's ordering, it's like a french bistro she's ordering all these rich foods and somebody says to her you know dr so-and-so your, your husband is just like a famous for uh, proselytizing the vegan diet and here you are ordering like all this stuff and she said to us um listen my husband goes to work every day he sees people dying of untimely cardiovascular disease he comes home and he says you know what we got to take this seriously we have to change our lifestyle so we don't accidentally have this happen we don't have this happen to us I come home every day and I see young people dying of leukemia who did nothing wrong. And I come home and I say, carpe diem, carpe diem. So let's eat up and have a glass of wine. Let's have the steak, right. Right, yeah. No, but, but this, okay, that's a perfect segue to the, I also want to ask you, that's a perfect segue into my view of screening, right? Because I, I, I see, uh, you know, uh, breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer. I will not get a PSA kind of thing. I don't want to know um, because... You're like, well, you could die of this disease. But the way I look at it is, like, I'm in the hospital every day. I'm seeing, I'm seeing shit happen every day to people that's just bad luck. And I'm like, there's a thousand ways to die. That's number one. Number two, you have such, it seems like you have such, such major improvements in breast cancer, in colon cancer, in prostate <laughs> cancer. And the better the treatment gets, it seems like it decreases the value of screening. 
you, you know, you're preaching to the choir, John. I mean, I think people forget, like, look, if, if you get a colonoscopy and then a year or two later you have metastatic colon cancer and you die of colon cancer, that was an unnecessary screening. If you get a colonoscopy, they clip a polyp and a year or two later you die of acute myeloid leukemia, that was an unnecessary screening. And if you get a colonoscopy and a year or two and they clip a polyp and you never die of colon cancer, but you never were going to die of it anyway, you know, you get hit by a bus when you're 95 years old or you die of a heart failure and you're going to have that happen anyway, that's an unnecessary screening. The only person who gets benefited by colonoscopy, you clip the polyp that would have killed you and now you're not going to die of it. But the problem is we don't know who that person is. And when you look at the randomized data, that is not the majority outcome. At best, it's 15 or 20% aversion of disease-specific death. And as you point out, I, I mean, I'm so on your same page, which is like, I'm a healthy person. Why do I want to minimize my risk of one of the, inf the many ways of dying? I want to either live longer or leave me alone. Promise me you can live, uh, promise me I'm living longer or... I'm not drinking your slurry and having you put a camera up my butt. I mean, are we, what are we talking about here? Do you want me to take a, two, a day off work, drink your slurry, you know, shit myself all night, have you come in, knock me out, ram this thing up me, possibly one in 10,000 chance perf me, and you can't even tell me that overall survival is better? You don't know that? Why would right. I do that? Why would I do that? And I... I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do the PSA. I wouldn't do the colonoscopy. I wouldn't do a mammography. I was a woman. I know many women who, you know, we know many doctors who are the same. I, I'm like, what are we doing here? And yeah, I, 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 yeah, it's just how I feel. I don't, I don't know how to feel any different. I guess, I guess people, what if, what if you had a strong family history of colon cancer or what if you had a strong, if you're a woman and you had a strong family history of breast cancer, would that change your mind? Because the, because the Bayesian prior, the pretest would be would be higher. Uh, yes and no. I mean, like, look, if you show me that I have Lynch syndrome, you show me I have familiar adenoma, polyposis, FAP, and I have APCG mutation. If you show me I have sort of a known culprit mutation, I have a strong history, and that mutation has fallen on my head. Okay, sure, I might, but I might not do screening. I might just get a colectomy. Some of these conditions, we just say, just remove the whole colon. Why we even? Why why take the gamble? Just cut the whole colon out. Or uh, if I have pathologic BRCA1 family history, I might just get a mastectomy prophylactically or once I'm done having kids or something like that. Um, so that point is well taken. But, you know, John, there's too often it's this history is soft. It's yeah. like, yeah, my uncle had colon cancer, but nobody else. And we don't have any known germ germline mutation. And so how am I to know that I'm at a higher risk than the average person or if it's just the bad luck of my family? Or what about the family where you don't know what happened to all your uncles? Like that's actually my, I don't know. I don't know all the details of my uncle's history, you know, cause they're, you know, from India and they're old people, you know? So it's like obscure. So I don't know. Um, and then the same thing, if you're black, you know, that, I mean, of course, black people have more breast cancer related mortality, but does that mean they benefit more from mammography? It doesn't naturally follow. And it's possible they're harmed even more. We don't know. Right. We do a disservice to populations at higher risk by not doing randomized trials just in those populations. If you want to help, the black community and myeloma and breast cancer, you would do randomized trials and enrich the population with those patients, not just to assume that more aggressive interventions benefit them. And then the final right. thing is, isn't that the truth of medicine, which is like, especially oncology, in the history of oncology, anytime you have failed to cure someone, the answer was never, you gave them too much chemo. It was, you didn't give enough. And so we always just up the ante. We do more and more and more until we finally realize that maybe we're carving up or disfiguring all these people as Halstead realized, and it was overkill, you know, and, and that's not the place I want to be. By the way, I want your listeners, I want the listeners to know that I feel the same way about looking at coronary calcium scans. I think this is one of the craziest things, this, <laughs> this idea of, of imaging the coronaries and, and finding uh, some calcification and, and in the U.S., the, the, the authors and, or the proponents don't say this. The proponents say it's to is to help people make decisions on statins. But what really happens in the US, as soon as there's a fleck of calcium in a coronary artery, that leads to a stress test and stress tests are often positive. And then that leads to angiography. And then, you know, that can lead to all kinds of things like uh, uh, stents and bypass. So I'm not, I'm in favor of paying attention to symptoms, living a healthy lifestyle, not, you know, you go for a bike ride and you're having chest pain and you not, not assuming it's asthma, but uh, this whole imaging your body without symptoms, I think, is is crazy. Why isn't there a randomized trial that we take adult, maybe even men over the age of 50, and randomize them, healthy men, to coronary CT scan versus nothing, powered for all-cause mortality at 15-year horizon? 
Is there you know such a study? Say? What? You know what they say? This what? is classic critical appraisal. They say it would take too many patients to show a benefit. Then why the fuck are you doing it? <laughs> what does it mean? Yeah, it means what? that. Yeah, it means you shouldn't do it because it's, it's no, very low that, yield. Yeah. I think we should explain this. Yes, if, explain. If someone says, if someone says you need a hundred thousand patients in a trial to show that this thing changes all-cause mortality, that means by definition that that the the effect size if it's there is tiny yes if it's there is tiny if it's there and then the other thing it means is that um maybe it's not there maybe it's not there and i think that's something that that's hard to get into their head that maybe it's there but maybe it's not there <laughs> maybe you it's know, not there i would also i would say that it probably isn't there and yeah, here's why because we already have randomized controlled trials in cardiology showing that anybody who has stable coronary disease that there is no mortality benefit to putting a stent in or uh or doing bypass surgery versus medicines uh in people who just have it diagnosed without symptoms and so we we so you already have that evidence so the only people who are benefiting from these scans are the people doing the scans the scan makers the hospitals and the downstream testers who are doing the stress test and the angiography and the researchers who make a career offer off of this kind of stuff. Uh, correct. And Vinay, I've seen 75-year-old people, 80-year-old um, people get coronary artery calcium scans. And this is how how bamboozled uh, uh medical profession is over this. It's it's crazy. You know, the other thing it makes me think is you, you say that for the coronary artery calcium, you're talking about sample size in the hundred thousands. They say it's gonna be too long and too costly. If you do the same power calculation for mammography for all-cause mortality, and I did it. I published in a paper called Powering Cancer Screening for All-Cause Mortality, I think, a few years ago. Um, it's something on the order of two to three million, which tells you that like, cardiovascular disease is still the most common cause of death. Now you get into breast cancer, which is one of many ways in which women die. Two to three million women have to be randomized, even to have the power to know if you improve all-cause mortality. We're, it's crazy. What are we doing? We got all these vans going. And meanwhile, John, like, I got to say this about the gas. This relates to the gas stoves. I got to say this gas stove thing. Can I talk about the gas? Oh, please. Okay. It's related to what we're saying. Okay. I see. I didn't want to get into the gas stoves. I don't. I, I, look, I, I like cooking and I like grilling outside. That's the pinnacle of cooking. Sure. Um, and if you cook inside, I like a gas stove because I'm an Indian and in Indian cooking, you need a certain way of cooking that thing. And uh, a gas is a, a very good way to get the Indian food to cook right. I started to see people say that we need to have a campaign to eliminate gas stoves, phase them out, don't have them indoors because they're bad for health. They cited some links. I clicked on those links and I vomited because they were so bad. The science was just so bad. And it was like, you know, an, an odds ratio 1.2 in a meta-analysis that had tons of confounders that they weren't addressing, blah, blah, blah. But then I thought to myself, this became quickly a left-right culture war issue. And I thought to myself, like, if you really sat down and thought about what is the challenges facing American children right now? Obesity, 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 sedentariness. That's like the top five, right? Obesity, sedentariness, obesity, um, uh, poor education, poor nutrition in school, lack of outdoor space, it's unsafe to walk, maybe even gun violence. You think about places like Chicago, gun violence, gun violence, gun violence, crime, um, you know, suicidality, anxiety, depression in teens, all that stuff. Okay, then underneath all of that, COVID-19, no, no, that's a super low rate, right? Forget COVID, COVID, and then, forget, and then gas stoves. And then I think to myself, to, to really try to legislate this when it's like the 75th priority, it's like the dumbest thing ever. You're making a culture war. Nobody cares. If you don't want to have a gas stove, get an electric. And if you don't want electric, get a gas. Who cares? Don't put a, you don't have the data to put a law in place and bring it back to your thing. It's the same thing with screening. It's like there are so many bigger fish to fry. People are overweight. They don't walk. They don't get exercise. They don't have good food. We don't want to do any of that. We just want to put you in a coronary artery calcium scanner. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like deal with the root problem. Well, why? Why? I, I, I haven't been following this gas stove thing because I just thought it was so foolish that it would just go away. And what, what gives this legs? I think there are, there are cynical views one cynical view is that it's part of a broader campaign against fossil fuels, which is, I mean, that, that's how the conservatives view it as cynical. And then the liberals might say that that's a necessary thing. Two is I think some people truly believe that some asthma in children is attributable to the use of gas stoves and nitric oxide that leaks out, nitric dioxide, nitric dioxide that leaks out of these stoves. Um, some people believe that. That evidence, I think, is very weak. Um, 
the other thing I think that that's being under discussed is like if you really replaced all the stoves with electric stoves, what are the unanticipated effects? Um, am I more likely or less likely to cook and more likely to get takeout? And in which case I could just totally blow away the effect, the beneficial effects, because we all know, you know, eating at home is probably better than eating that garbage that you can buy at restaurants. Um, they put more salt and butter. Um, but why is this an issue? I don't know, John. Who? Why would you want government to regulate your stove? It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Just yeah, like, just seems, and I it, and I'm pro regulation. I'm pro regulation. I'm in a. I'm a it, yeah, I mean, I, it just seems like are the are are the meta analysis that are they just a bunch of observational studies thrown together? Of course, and poor poor quality observational studies with inadequate adjustment for confounders. Yes. Huh. Huh. Oh, <laughs> uh, somebody. <laughs> Somebody in my house just texted me that says they're coming for our washing machines too. I haven't heard that yet, but um, yeah, I don't are, know. Um, oh, I, they, I, they, I, they actually, didn't they a few years ago, when I was a kid growing up, all the washing machines where you open the top up, they filled with water. Now they're front loading, so they use less water. Um, but um, people like me are complaining sometimes that uh, it doesn't get things as clean as when I was a kid and it was way more water because you need a certain amount of water to get the dirt out. Um, well, it just goes to the whole thing. I mean, just it just goes to the whole thing where like the 75th priority is yes. is uh, it's like we can't see the real problem uh, in front of our eyes. I mean, I, I'm not a pediatrician, but I can I can see what's happening to kids. I mean, uh, obesity is huge, right? We're talking about putting kids on semaglutide for I don't know how long for for a long time. So death to the And then yeah. my grandkids are on their devices all the time, and I'm thinking that can't be good. And yet we're worried about gas stoves. I I, I don't know. I have a gas stove. It, it seems to work better than an electric <laughs> stove. And you know, um, go to a elementary school in in France or Denmark and see what they feed the children. And go to an elementary school in the United States and see what they feed the children. They feed them dog food in this country. You're feeding these kids dog food, which is so bad for them, ultra-processed garbage food that's cheap, and you're feeding it because it's cheap. And that, to me, is a much higher priority item than get, switching a few gas stoves, which people don't want to switch because a lot of people like gas. Or if you really cared about gas stoves, why not just install a hood in people's houses so it ventilated a little bit? I thought they wanted to do that with their COVID anyway. They want these vent Everything wants to be ventilated. Do a little ventilation. Okay, fine. I'm happy with that. But why do you want to ruin my... You know, to get the char on certain foods, and you need a little char. Gas is key. I mean, okay, let's put it yeah. aside. So, so it reminds me. Yes. Uh, many years ago, before I really, before I, I, I'm still not an, I'm still not a great thinker. But before I really thought, and I just blindly followed things. I, I gave my friend crap about having a big SUV. I'm like, Bobby, what's up with this SUV? This is a gas guzzler. He goes, Yeah, John. He goes, uh, I, I only work two miles from my office, so. You know, I might have a gas guzzler, but I only work two miles. What about all these people who, you know, drive 30 minutes every day? You know, they're burning more gas in a Toyota than I'm burning in this gas guzzler. So just made me think that about big picture uh, kind of thinking. Stop totally and think. Stop and think. And then related to that is somebody's like, oh, I'm switching to buy a Tesla. But if you if you take a car that has a lot of years of life left on it and throw it away after only three years to buy a Tesla, maybe you actually are worse for the environment because you have to mine all the minerals out of the earth to build a new car every three years or whatever. Um, if you really care, you know, you could minimize tr tr driving it all, etc. Okay, let's talk about, um, wait, closing thoughts on ASCO, then we'll talk about the Elon study. Closing okay. thought on ASCO. Um, you know, I do think it, the, cheerleaders, the cheerleader squad is strong. Uh, as one example, I'm going to talk about this uh, lung cancer study, Adora. And basically the gist is some people with that driver mutation lung cancer, they take the pill when they have the metastatic cancer. And I showed you how they did in those figures. They got a new trial where they take people who have localized lung cancer. It's just in the lung and we cut it out. Some of them are cured already and we randomize them to taking the same pill they're supposed to take in the future early, okay, or be observed. And they say there's a big survival benefit to taking the pill early in many, many more people than taking it you know, when you have metastatic disease. Well, wait a second. That already sounds good to me. Okay. Sounds good so far. Then in the study where the control arm had metastatic disease, they're supposed to get the osimertinib. That's the U.S. standard of care. But they ran it in countries where they can't afford the osimertinib. So when they have when they have metastatic disease, they take very inferior therapy. Okay. So now they say 
if you give this new costly drug to lots and lots of people, it's better than a control arm that is negligent, substandard care that we're not doing in the U.S. That's the study. But how does that, okay, how does that happen? I mean, aren't these trials done? I mean, aren't they're, they're approval trials, I assume. And so aren't yeah. they done with regulatory? I mean, aren't they, aren't they in consultation with the regulators? And aren't these things pre-specified? And I mean, these are thoughtful people. I mean, we, we, we in cardiology, we, we have Paradigm HF. But other, other than that, we have pretty good control arms, I mean, in, in our trials. How, how does this happen? I don't understand. How does a 16-year-old kid who already had COVID have a recommendation to get five boosters. <laughs> I mean, I, I really, really, how did that happen? That not only he needs one, no, two, no, but, but wait, three, no, four. Uh, yeah, I mean, COVID was politicized. So you, yes. could, you could say that, you could say that, you know, COVID was politicized, but, but oncology, I mean, lung cancer is not politicized. I mean, the, so but, there must be something else. I mean, there's a lot more money. If you give more people a drug that's costly earlier, you make a lot more money. So but why does it happen? Aren't the regulators telling the trialists that, like, you all can't do that? We're not going to no. approve this. No, not at all. They're they're along for the ride. Uh, um, why? To be honest with you, I mean, I'll put the money aside because that's a cynical answer. What's the real answer? The real answer is if you became a regulator and you really understood these principles deeply and you really enforced them strongly, you would be a disagreeable regulator. I mean, you would be putting your foot up their company's ass every day. You know what I mean? And that is not psychologically easy for people. You and I both know, John, that in the pandemic, and even when we talk about clinical trials like we do, um, many of our colleagues agree with us, but they have a great deal of difficulty in being disagreeable. I mean, it's not a trait we select for in medicine, but if you really want to push back on failures and medical lapses, you have to be a little disagreeable. Um, I think that's probably the big part of it is that I can't imagine. I mean, most people going into the FDA are quiet people. I mean, they're maybe even introverted. They're people who just want a day job. They don't want, you know, they want to do good. They don't want to rock the boat. And if you really went and shot and made these companies make these changes, these would be substantive changes. Um, the other thing is like, they only talk to the company. They're not talking to like, they're not having a meeting with me and like other people who are critics. And also there's only like 10 of us critics out there. Most people don't care or don't know. They don't understand the issue. So like lack of knowledge, desire not to be disagreeable. And then finally, all the perverse financial interests go in one way. But, but, okay, okay. So, all right. So that takes care of the regulators. And of course, the the company, the company has a, you know, has a profit motive. So they have a, they have a, you know, they have a duality of interest. Okay. But then they publish this study. What about the doctor who reads the study and says, well, this is BS. This is a this is a crap comparator. This doesn't tell me anything. I'm not convinced. And then what? Why why doesn't the average oncologist know that this is a lousy comparator? And you know they're they're not going to do it. I think that's a good point. A few reasons. One. Just wait before you say anything. Doctors are you know they were biology or chemistry majors. They took statistics. They got great scores on their MCATs. These are smart people, right? We, we, we had to go over a lot of hurdles before we got an MD. So we should be capable of this. They're, those, that's very true. They're also overworked, underpaid, administratively burdened. That's true. They don't have time for critical appraisal. They're not reading it the way that we read it. Not all of them listen to plenary session or, you know, uh, this week in cardiology. You know, not all of them listen to the critical appraisal people. Um, they were they've been taught a lot of biology, but they haven't been taught a lot of critical appraisal. Like these statistical concepts are new to them. Post protocol therapy. You know, my research team put that this whole idea on the map that like not only does it matter what you get during the trial, but even after the trial, especially for survival. Um, they're not familiar with that. They're tired. And then also, who's coming to their office? The AstraZeneca drug rep is coming to their office saying, hey, here's the brochure. I, Vinay Prasad is not going to anyone's office with a slick brochure and says, yo, listen to plenary session and here's why this trial is trash. Ah, I got you know, I'm not doing that, but they are. And also, I'm not as good looking as them. Uh, you know, I'm a uh, mediocre. They're very good looking. And when a good looking person comes to you and praises you, John, 
it's not just they come to you. They say, Dr. Mandrola, you are really smart and talented and you're so wonderful and we would love to get your opinion at AstraZeneca. By the way, here's our new drug. And if you have any questions, that's my number. You can always reach me. That is very persuasive. If I really? come by, it's really? of course. If it, then why are they all good looking, John? Of course it's persuasive. Don't persuade me anymore. I mean, I don't. Well, you're, you're a cynical old man, but. <laughs> no, all right, let me ask you this then. Okay, okay. I, I think that. I think that saying doctors can't do critical appraisal or don't do critical appraisal, I think that's pretty sad. But but what is the effect of guidelines? Because in cardiology, we one of the drivers of using low value care and and not doing good critical appraisal is that things get into guidelines, and then when things get into guidelines, they become even though the guideline writers say, ah, oh, this is just for guidance it becomes standard of care and people feel pushed into doing these things. So do you have the same problem in oncology? Yes. And that's the root of the problem, which is that guidelines and the meeting are not controlled by the average doctor in the field. It's controlled by the key opinion leaders. And those key opinion leaders are very tight with the companies. They have very strong professional interests to keep the companies happy. They are often the biggest cheerleaders. And uh, it's a very sort of uh, cozy incestuous relationship yeah but now come on they have disclosure slides (laughs) um i guess i'd say uh disclosure in studies by uh saw from nyu school of business has been shown to only increase trust in the person with the conflict and not actually mitigate the conflict i mean it's the poorest solution if we really cared about it we would have recusal which means that for some, yes, you can take money, but you can't also write the guidelines. We, there's some recusal necessary. And um, look, disclosure, I think, is in, in, insufficient, maybe even backfires a lot. But, but, then, but then the other thing, let me take it even one step further from guidelines. Uh, because uh, one of the other things that I, I think about in my, in my head is that, is that the professional societies, like our professional societies are are getting money from the industry and and so there 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 almost seems like uh they're part of and and also they're 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 signing off on the guidelines they may not be their guidelines but they're signing off on the guidelines the acc aha guidelines the esc guidelines canadian society of cardiology guidelines but yet these societies wouldn't exist right without grants from uh companies that that provide our therapeutics so i don't it's to me, it seems it, it seems really deep, these conflicts. I mean, I agree with you. If you recall, one of the Nobel Prizes was given for lobotomy. And what's my point here? Okay. My point is that I don't think at any moment in time, nobody thought the people doing the lobotomies were engaged in an unethical act at the time. In fact, proof that they didn't think that was they gave the man a Nobel Prize. Nobody thinks any... If you go back to all the medical scandals of the last century, and there are many, in retrospect, we can all say, oh, look at those bad people, you know? Uh, at the time, it's very difficult to say that. It was almost always according to local norms or standards. Sometimes I even, I'm one of the people who defend them and say you can't use modern ethics against them. I am pretty confident that 50 years from now, a lot of what we think of as acceptable routine clinical trial stuff that's just normal, like, okay, yeah, it's totally okay. Yeah, we, we want a drug approved in the US. We can totally fly to India and Brazil and uh, Georgia and Armenia, and we can totally run the trial against placebo because they don't got a drug there. And like right now, they're like, that's totally cool. And like, there's nothing ethically wrong with that. But 50 years from now, they'd be like, look at these colonialist, exploitative sons of bitches going over there and exploiting those poor people rather than creating a centralized healthcare in those in the towns or running the trial in their own damn country if they want, you know. So I think morality and evolves too. Nobody thought the lobotomy dude was doing shoddy science at the time. Maybe a few people thought it, but he won the Nobel Prize. And now in retrospect, you look back and you're like, my God, this is trash. What the hell? Lobotomy probably, you know, almost did nothing of good. All right, I want to I talk more about this and I think we should yes. table the Elon trial for next week. All right. It's too important. But I want to ask you, Okay, here's what the guideline writers say in my field. They say, John, we, we, we really can't find anybody who's expert enough to write these guidelines because all the people who are expert enough, these academic uh, cardiologists, they all have industry relationships because their industry is 
responsible for a lot of our our research and our, a lot of our innovation. So we 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 can't find people without conflicts, and I'm I'm very skeptical of that. And I just wonder. I mean, what do what do you think? Are there enough? I mean, if you feel like the routine doctor doesn't have time to do critical appraisal, then who the hell is going to be on the guideline committee? Yeah, it's a it's a point people make, which is that all of the experts are conflicted, so we have to use them. The counterpoints would be, you know, if you if you created policies where you couldn't take money and be on the guidelines, you would change people's behavior. There'd be a lot of junior academics who are like, dude, I don't want to ruin my chance of being on the guidelines for two grand. It's not worth it. I'm just not going to take yeah. the money. So it will change the behavior. So you have more and more a pool of people who are not conflicted. That's one. Two, um, you know, expertise is so weird to me. I, without getting into the example, recently a friend called me with a health problem. It was outside my sphere of knowledge. It was cardiology. And I asked you all on that text chat. So we don't have to say what it is. But, you know, it's a cardiology question that a, a friend of mine had. And uh, I started to do digging into the data. The data is so bad, John. It's like there's no data. There's no prospective data. There's no randomized data. We're like retrospective studies of different time periods. And my friend is asking me, like, you know, what should I ask the doctor or, or which expert should I go to? And I almost wanted to tell him, like, I don't even know what it means to be the expert with data like this. It's like at the end of the day, we all have our gut feeling, which is, is it better to act now or give it a week or two? Is it better to do, the, do it now or take another measurement? And, you know, the more I practice medicine you know, 10 years of practice, I always say, slow your roll. If if the patient looks fine and feels fine, slow your roll, you know, get more data, take your time, think about it, ask different people. If, 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 if 99 out of 100 doctors agree, okay, that's one situation. But sometimes you ask 100 doctors and you get 62 different opinions. So that's a different situation. Yeah. And so, and what are you left with? At some point, it's not even data. It's this philosophy of medicine, as you talk about, which is that if you're healthy, it's a lot easier to fuck that up than make it better. And if you're really sick and, de and, de and going downhill, then you give it a shot. And that's a philosophical view that you and I, I think, share um, that, you know, so what does it mean to have expertise when the data is said is so poor? Um, I struggle with it. Yeah. And, and, and to me, to me, I mean, we, we talk more about guidelines. We talk about Elon, but it seems to me that it seems to me that if everybody agrees, okay, we can have that in a guideline. Okay, um, you know, you got to take a clopidogrel. You got to take an antiplatelet after a stent. I mean, everybody agrees about that. We should take MIs to the lab quickly. Everybody agrees about that. Um, everybody agrees about CML treatment. But it seems like there's so many gray areas. But yet, in in these guidelines written by experts that have some dualities of interest there there's recommendations based on this really lousy data and to me i it, it just seems to me that there's too much overreach and uh it it seems to me that a, a non-content expert more non-content experts who can critically appraise the data would be able to say when there's definitive yes you should recommend that and no you should you know leave it up to clinician judgment there I totally agree. And in 50 years, John, like your point of view is not going to be a provocative point of view. Everyone will be in your point of view. And we'll ask ourselves, how could we ever have done otherwise? We'll, we'll look back and say, well, how did, why did we have a system where the people taking money from the catheter maker was telling me when I should be using the catheter? Now we have a system where it's like mostly statisticians, methodologists, a few cardiologists consulting, a few staff people whose only job is critical appraisal, like the German Ickwig and others, like, uh, you know, where they are really good at critical appraisal. That's their job. We have courses in critical appraisal. Maybe people will learn more about that on this podcast someday. Um, I think it, the whole, you know, this is progress, but yeah, it will be different. Why do you think why do you think it's going to evolve that way? It could evolve the other way. I guess I'd say that uh I'm not sure you're right about that. <laughs> I, I, uh well, because I, one, one of the yeah. things one of the things that I, one of the, one of my arguments against that and I don't know what'll happen predicting the future is, you know, you're not going to be able to do, but one of the things that's happening in medicine is we're we're changing, right? We're we're having more um, we're having more, um, uh, I don't want to make anybody mad, but we're having more non-physicians move into clinical care who sometimes can be more thoughtful than clinicians. But sure. I, one of the things that, one of the things that I worry is that sometimes, you know, um, 
advanced practice clinicians may not be as you know feel feel confident enough to to question authority and so the the more that shift happens the more it may be just moving towards an algorithm and just do what the experts say you know you make a fair point um and to be honest with you i am pessimistic about something broader than this which is like the fate of nations and democracy i think democracy is very vulnerable in the next 50 years I think the pandemic made it more vulnerable. I think lack of education makes it vulnerable. Increasing income equality makes it vulnerable. Um, misinformation makes it vulnerable. And people calling things misinformation that are part of legitimate debate make it vulnerable. These zealots on both sides make it vulnerable. And so I am very worried that the, senti- the American populism sentiment is high. Without going into detail, we recently saw a video where vigilante justice was administered and it was cheered on by doctors without knowing the facts, because nobody knows the facts of that incident, but it was vigilante justice, and it was cheered on by MD-PhDs, which I'll talk about someday when I have the guts to talk about it. This is a very, it's a very combustible situation. Um, So I do worry there'll be some populace that takes over and we're gonna fuck up a lot of stuff about this country, so that's my worry. Medicine, I'm a little bit more optimistic about, because even, because in the long haul, medicine is accountable in a way that politics is not, which is that you do either you you either close that curve or you don't close that curve you know you people live longer or they don't and you can try to you know juke the statistics all you want but at the end of the day you know people who say no new york did better than florida they can't say that when you look at excess mortality you know there there's some things about medicine that are just objective and so i do believe that more than other fields and we also recruit smart people and it doesn't take a lot of smart people to outwit these you know sickle fans um I think, we, uh, you know, medicine has better odds than democracy. I mean, that's my view. Okay. Yeah. But, you're, you know, I agree with you, John. It's, I'm a little I, nervous, I too. Hope, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. And we should tell, we should close by telling the listeners that, that next week, I mean, this, this Elon trial is going to be, we're going to, it's going to be a blockbuster podcast because it's really, it's really a, a completely paradigm changing way to, to, to look at how we consider evidence and, and do trials. So I'm very excited about it. I'm super excited. It's going to bring up a lot. P- listeners who are very interested in null hypothesis testing, um, people like uh, 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 statistical uh, inferences and extreme hypotheses, the work of Daniel Lockins and Deb Mayo, you guys will like this kind of discussion. So we'll be back to talk about that. All right. All right, John. It's good to see you. I'm glad this worked out. This has been Excellent. Sensible Medicine. Our colleague in arms is, is not here. Maybe he'll be back soon. I can talk about what's going on with him. And uh, we'll be back later. Until next time. Awesome.